Hello, and welcome to the Czar and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got my partner, Darcy, on the other side. How's it going, Darcy? Hey, what's up? Feeling a little bit more awake now, but uh, still a bit of an early morning on this Sunday to be talking murder. Right? But um, I am going on vacation, taking a little vacay over to the West Coast, getting out of Illinois for a while. Um, leaving at a very inopportune moment because we've got all this remodeling going on. So I'm leaving my significant other to deal with all of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> He's got to deal with all of the stuff and I'm going to go off and have sun and fun and lay by a pool. Man, that sounds delightful. But I don't want to bring all my equipment. So we're right. recording in advance. So yeah. this episode will probably come out a few weeks from now. So um, yeah, we're still in the middle of summer right now. Uh-huh. Loving the August weather and how things are not quite as hot as they were uh, last month, although we've had quite a few storms already. Not quite as hot as they were. It's here. This is the hottest month of the year here. Mm. And it's brutal. Yeah, not so much here. It's starting Mm. to cool down a little bit. Lucky. Lucky, Mm. lucky, lucky. It'll start cooling down in Alabama around October. That'll be nice. Yeah, not till then. Uh, Maybe middle of September, but yeah. Yeah, I've got quite a bit of travel coming up from now until the end of the year. Wow, that's awesome. So it should be interesting. I'll be going to California a few times, Florida, that kind of thing. So I'm kind of keeping my eye on what's going on everywhere Mm -hmm. because... I did travel to California for work last week. Yeah, where were you? I was in Barstow. I saw that on your Instagram, and I was really confused. Why were you? you Well, I flew into Vegas. You were in Barstow for work? I flew into Vegas. Yeah. Okay. One of our customers is out there. Oh. Um, And I was meeting meeting with a customer, which was really cool. Did you go Um, to the Route 66 Museum? I did not. Mm-hmm. I didn't have time for that. It was with customers and coworkers gotcha. the whole time I was there. But I flew into Vegas and mm-hmm. got in at like way late because our flight was delayed a couple of times. Um, didn't get in until almost one o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing in the rental car line waiting to get my rental car. And this security guy walks up and says, hey, the counter that you're trying to go to for your rental car is closed. Uh- so... Don't even bother going over there because you have to go. And from the Vegas airport, you have to go to a separate right. building by bus to get your rental car. Ugh. So I was just like, oh, my God, no, no, because I had no way to get to the hotel. Um, our hotel was two and a half hours away from oh my the airport. And I was supposed to drive there, <laughs> which was just not poor planning what on my part. Do? Did you have to stay like in Vegas? The rental counter was open again at six. That's what they oh. said. Okay. And by then it was 2 a.m. After I'd gotten my, my luggage, yeah. deplane, gotten to the line for the rental car and everything. So I was like, so I have to wait here for four hours oh. <laughs> until the rental car place opens. So I that sat there sucks. and I was like, so freaking exhausted. I mean, and I you're slept. outside security. So you're like, there's no, there's not the good restaurants aren't like out there. And I went back into the airport because it was hot as hell outside. Yeah. Um, and sat and did work and writing and things like that. I'd slept on the plane for the four hour flight. So yeah. I was somewhat rested, although I don't think nothing, I don't think anything can, can prepare your body for staying up all night. No. Um, so at six o'clock the next morning, I get into the rental car line again. Of course, there's nobody there at that time. Yeah. Um, get in there and get over to the rental car place and stand up at the counter. And I'm like, yeah, I had to wait at the airport because you guys weren't open until six. And she's like, what are you talking about? 
And I had actually called the rental car place too. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? Like I'm sitting at the airport. I don't have any way to get yeah. to my hotel. And they were like, well, I guess you just have to wait till six o'clock tomorrow morning. They, they were so unhelpful and they weren't sorry at all. And so I was like, okay, well the security guard told me it. The guy on the phone yeah. told me it, it must be it. But the lady was like, no, we stay open 24 hours a day for oh customers just like you who get stuck here. So I don't know who told oh you that. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like. I would have been. Uh, so hot <laughs> I was like pissed. yeah it wasn't fun um so essentially I get my rental car and I go pull up to the nearest like rest station and, and just and I just slept um I was exhausted yeah so I slept for like two hours and then I got up and drove to my hotel and went to sleep again because I had a travel day planned for the next day anyway but I was in well, that's that's nice but still. in the lovely town of Barstow which is about a two I and a half drive. I have been to Barstow. Yeah, two and a half hour and drive. I have been to the Route 66 Museum. It's actually pretty cool. We went, the only place we really went was like a Mexican restaurant in a hotel called Los Domingos, I think it's called. Okay. Um, it was okay. The drinks were a lot better yeah. than the food was. Yeah. Um, but what I thought was particularly interesting is the area that we were at was about an hour from Barstow. Oh, and okay. There were borough crossing signs everywhere. Evidently, there are a lot of um, but there were a lot of like borough crosses, a lot of donkeys out in this particular area. Interesting. And I wanted to see them so bad because evidently they come out and hang out. You can see horse poop everywhere, or donkey poop everywhere. And I was like, what is this from? Yeah. And somebody told me about the burrows and I started noticing the signs everywhere and I wanted to see them so badly and I didn't get to see them. So I was bummed. That's... Because oh. I love donkeys. They're just the coolest creatures. And did you know they can't breed by themselves? That's interesting, yes. right? So in order for yeah. a donkey to be created, somebody has to inseminate the animals. Yeah. And, you know, m mules are, horse, are the offspring of horses and donkeys. And they cannot reproduce Weird, at all. Weird, huh? Just a wild, yeah. wild, wild thing. But anyway, um, I spent that time in Barstow, and I actually had a wonderful time. I liked it. The heat was dry. Um, it, no yeah. humidity. So, like, it was 108 degrees <laughs> out there in the desert. But I got to see a lot of really yeah. cool stuff, and I met a lot of amazing people. Um, I had an awesome time. But unfortunately, I think that was right before the whole huge scare started about the Delta variant. And so I don't mm -hmm. think we're going to be traveling mm -hmm. again for a while. I heard things are starting to shut back yeah. down. But when I was there, um, yeah. we were partially masked. A lot of places would recommend it but not require it. Mm -hmm. um, but the airport and everything else was masked, and the, the customer's um, location was masked. So mm -hmm. um, it's definitely kind of a situation where um, I think it will be transitioning. And we heard that like Florida is going to go on lockdown too soon. Yeah, because, they, well, I who knows, I don't, who I knows know. what will happen, but they're not same thing that in Florida is happening here. Nobody wants to, to do masks and the governors are not. They're like, we're not going to shut down again. We don't need the government telling us what to do. And there's. Just, it's like it, and Alabama so still crazy. has the lowest vaccination rate. I don't want to get into yeah. it, but anyway. Well, luckily in California, where I'm there this second time, I won't be in any hotels or anything like that. I'll be in a private mm -hmm. residence, so I don't have to worry about any of that. Um, yeah, but I get nice. pup time. I get to hang out with the dogs, so I'm yeah. very excited. Eat some Rubios for me, dude. Rubios. God, I had in and out when I was there because <laughs> I missed it. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a bunch of places I want to go. I want to go to Ballast Point. I want to <sighs> get some pho. Oh, Ballast Point. We'll probably go to In-N-Out again when, when we're there. Because 
there is no place like in and out here. S- seriously, if please go yeah. to Rubio's. Just take a picture yeah. of Rubio's if you don't seriously. want to be there for me. <laughs> Just take a picture and see. I gotta hit all the good places sure. when I'm there. I'm so excited. Get get a massage. That's honestly one of the most things I'm so excited about about moving back to California is like Rubio's. Dude. All the food. Like the food in California uh-huh. is amazing. Yeah. Like they have so many choices. It's so fresh and delicious. Good. I mean, yeah, there's crappy places too, but you just don't get the same kind of quality here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's some good places here, don't get me wrong, but like you get but, like, so many more of them. Genuine, there. real Mexican food yeah. out there. Yeah. You just you don't in get Southern that California. here. It's so good. No. So, main case for the day. Eileen Warnos. Ah. A light yeah. one. That's a nice Sunday. Um, <laughs> this is an interesting case because she was kind of had the distinction of being the first reported slash highly studied female serial killer. Mm -hmm. So that's where she got that distinction. And there was that movie that came out in 2003 Mm -hmm. monster. God, was that 2003? Um, Starring Charlize (sighs) Theron as Warnos. Mm -hmm. Um, And she got an Academy award for that. So yeah, she did. We'll talk about that film a little bit towards the end, but it was amazing. If you have not seen it, highly, highly, highly recommend. Highly if you can handle, recommend. you know, trigger warning. It's you know, just, her life right. was not pretty. Right. So if you can handle that, then by all means watch that movie because it the acting in it is just incredible. Both with Charlize so and, and Christina, Christina Ricci, Ricci were just amazing. Are both yeah. so good. Yeah. Christina Ricci playing the girlfriend of Eileen Warnos. Mm-hmm. So amazing, amazing, amazing film. Go check it out. So. Warnos was born Eileen Carol Pittman. She was born in Rochester, Michigan, which is a very rough area. <laughs> have you been there? Yeah. I used to have to travel to Michigan frequently um, for business, and I've seen a lot of Michigan. Um, there are some very dark, rough areas. There are some very poor areas in Michigan, and it's sad. It's incredibly sad. There are a lot of um, kind of buildings that are dilapidated and waiting to fall down the same with the housing i mean it is a city that has been abandoned in many areas and in the areas that are still there there's a lot of poverty the water's bad the you know it's hard to get anything decent in some of those areas but rochester is it's okay um february 29th 1956 is when she was born she's a child of the 50s so what's interesting is her mom diane married her father Leo Dale Pittman. She was 14 and he was 16. 16? So her parents. Were children, yeah. too. Her parents, mom was 14, dad was 16. Yeah, wow. And they got married June 3rd, 1954, which is, again, surprising in its own because number one, they were so young, and number two, like, why did they get married? <laughs> And it's the 50s, yeah. so you know it's still that conservative time. So maybe that is maybe she got pregnant and they got married to make an honest woman of her because that was kind of mm-hmm. a 50s thing, right? Eileen did have an older brother named Keith, and the very very young parents got divorced after about two years of marriage, and that was about two months after Eileen was born. Mm-hmm. The mom files for divorce. Her mom Diane. She never met her father. Interestingly enough. Um, He was incarcerated when she was born, so he was in jail. Um, He was diagnosed with with schizophrenia and had been convicted of sex crimes against children. So you know he Mm. was not getting treatment in jail. Um, 
just a bad, bad, bad type of a situation. Yeah. He ended up committing suicide. He hung himself mm. January 30th, 1969. Awful. You know, people that are in prison for crimes against children usually suffer mm -hmm. the most kind of retribution behind prison walls. So I can imagine being schizophrenic and not receiving treatment mm -hmm. and being in there for that must have been just a very, very dark, horrific kind of an experience and just awful. So this is her father, mm -hmm. right? So she never met him, but he just sounds like he has so much going against him. Hopefully, you know, genetics don't yeah. play a factor in this. But in about 1960, the first part of 1960s, 60, Wornos is about four years old, and Diane just takes off, her mom. She leaves them with their maternal grandparents. Hmm. So, you know, great parenting on that side, too. The parents, Lori and Britta Wornos, are both alcoholics, but they legally adopt both Eileen and her brother in 1960. Okay. Okay. In the middle part of 1960. By about age 11, Wornos is starting to engage in sexual acts in exchange for cigarettes, drugs, and food at school. Yeah. Which, when you have a child that is doing things like that, that is not something that a child comes up with out of their imagination Absolutely. or out of a dream or out of their own brain. That is something that is inflicted upon that child and something that they have been exposed to by that an they adult have been exposed to it before. that does yeah. that to them. That is not something they come up with on their own. But in any case, she started doing that at about age 11. And she also engaged in that sort of thing with her brother, which, again, mm -hmm. something that was inflicted upon her, not that she came up with on her own. Mm -hmm. um, she also claimed that her alcoholic grandfather sexually assaulted her and beat her, which, again, not surprising. Um, mm -hmm. He was said to strip her out of her clothes before he did this and make her stand there naked while he abused her. And she mm -hmm. got pregnant in 1970 at the age of 14. She claimed that she'd been raped by an accomplice of her grandfather, which is completely believable. Just very, right. very sad and dark. So Warnos gives birth to this child who is a boy at a home for unwed mothers in 1971, which wild that that was a thing. Home for unwed mothers. Home for unwed mothers, yeah. So these girls get pregnant through no fault of their own or, you know, accidentally or, you know, they have a boyfriend and they have sex and get pregnant and have to go to these unwed mother homes um, so they can have the child, put the child up for adoption. The family won't be embarrassed for having this pregnant yep. girl in their home. Because it's a very shameful yes. thing. Back then. At that time. It was extremely shameful. So she goes to this unwed mother's home. And the child was placed for adoption, put up for adoption. Okay. Again, mm -hmm. common occurrence um, when the young girls got pregnant. She's 14. She still has a life to live. Mm -hmm. um, and she drops out of school not too long after that. Her grandmother dies of liver failure around that same time. And her grandfather throws her out of the house around age 15. So in order to support mm -hmm. herself, what, what's she going to do? She lives in the woods near her home, her old home that she was kicked out of, and she works as a sex worker because that's the only thing she knows. Mm -hmm. She's been abused. She's been beaten. She's been sexually assaulted. She's been raped. That's the only thing she knows. Mm -hmm. It's not like she's going to go get a job as a secretary. She's 15, you know? Yeah. 
And she's not in school no. anymore, so. So she's not getting an education. She's barely literate. She's in a very, very dark place at that point. Yeah. She begins this criminal activity, this history of criminal activity. And she starts very young. Um, in 1974, she's about 18, and she gets arrested in Colorado for driving under the influence, disorderly conduct, and firing a pistol from a moving vehicle. Mm. So who knows how she got to Colorado? <laughs> um, and who knows why she was driving around in a car, drunk and shooting a pistol from the window? Like That kind of sounds like joyriding, but like... Anyway, wild, right? So this is in the 70s, right? Mid 70s. And she's charged with failure to appear because she doesn't show up. But Mm -hmm. can you blame her? I mean, nothing good is going to come out of that trial and they didn't hold her. So Mm -hmm. bye. Mm -hmm. She then, you know, makes her way by hitchhiking to Florida. Okay, mm-hmm. this is about 1976 by then, and she meets... And hitchhiking was, like, yeah, all the rage. everyone was hitchhiking back then. Yeah. Um, she meets this 69-year-old yacht club president, which, to me, is one of the most interesting yeah. parts of this story. <laughs> a yacht club president. I mean, where, how do you meet someone like that? Are they wearing a hat? Do they call themselves captain? Like... Probably. I don't know. And this is the 70s, so this is, like, the... the like captain and Tennille. Hyatt. <laughs> The height of yacht rock. Oh, yacht so like rock. they've got the music, they've got the clothes, they've got the sideburns, they've got it all. She meets this guy, his name is Louis Fell. And they marry. They even printed um, news of their wedding in their society pages. So she gets in the society pages. Eileen. Yeah. She's twenty at this time. Okay? She got to be in the society this is pages. Like that was a big her deal. Life turning around. Right? And she's like, I can make something happen yeah. here. I can, something positive is coming to me, finally. But she keeps getting into confrontations at local bars. And she goes to jail for assault. She also hit this guy with his own cane. Her husband? He's 69 years old. Yeah, her husband. Yikes. And he got a restraining order a couple weeks into the marriage. She goes back to Michigan. Um, and then she's arrested again and charged with assault and disturbing the peace because she threw a cue ball at a bartender's head. Oh my gosh. That could she do just, some for real damage. I think she likes to get drunk and then she just acts crazy. Yeah. Well, right? alcohol I mean, runs what it in her sounds family. Like. Schizophrenia runs yeah. in her family. I mean, she's not genetically predisposed to the best situation. No. So she's like just, she cannot keep herself mm-hmm. out of trouble. Then... That same year in 76, her brother dies of cancer, mm. which is super sad. You know, all of her family is basically dying around her. Right. Her brother, her grandmother, her father, like, and she has a very complicated relationship with her brother because of all of yes. the abuse. and Exactly. Yeah. But she was actually the um, beneficiary for his life insurance. And hmm. She got $10,000 after he died. Okay. Her marriage gets an old shortly after her brother's death. And then she is given a fine for drunk driving later in August. And she uses the money that she got from her brother's insurance to pay for the fine. And then uses the rest of the money to buy a new car, which she immediately goes out and wrecks and some other luxuries that she had her eye on. Probably some clothing Mm -hmm. and whatnot, right? 
Okay, fast forward to May 1981. She's arrested in Edgewater, Florida. She tries to rob a convenience store. It's an armed robbery. She stole 35 bucks and two cigarette packets. Mm, man. Which, really, if you're going to get arrested for armed robbery, you should probably make sure it's more than just two packs of cigarettes and 35 yeah. bucks. Right? Not that I'm advocating on any way, shape, or form for people to go armed rob, some, rob something. But yeah. any case, she was sentenced to prison in 1982 and released in 1983 for that armed robbery. So she didn't really get that long. She got about a year in prison. She's already a felon, so she's not supposed to be having a gun. Yeah. But then um, she's arrested again in 1984 May for attempting to pass forged checks. Hmm. And she's also named as a suspect in the theft of a gun and ammunition. Oops. Again in, again in Florida. So she's, she can't keep herself out of <laughs> trouble. Then, 1986, it's January, she gets arrested in Miami, and she's charged this time with car theft, resisting arrest, and obstruction of justice. Hmm. She also is using her aunt's ID to to provide ID. Miami um, police find a gun and a box of ammunition in the stolen car she's in. Then, in June 1986, police detain her and question her about a male companion of hers that it was accused of pulling a gun in his car and demanding $200. Uh-huh. She's found to be carrying the ammunition and police found the, find the pistol under the passenger seat she in the vehicle she'd been in. Yikes. So she's just getting in all kinds of trouble. So this is about the time she meets Taria Moore. And Taria is a hotel maid. And Eileen meets her at a Daytona Beach lesbian bar. Okay. Which... Okay, this is the late 80s. Mm-hmm. It, I don't think it was that socially acceptable to be gay during that time. In Daytona, it might have been. Daytona's kind of always like a freewheeling, spring breakish kind of a place. But in any case, this, these two move in together. And Eileen is supporting her new girlfriend with her money from being a sex worker, mm-hmm. she, which she's continuing to do to pay for their life together. Then July 4th, 1987, the police grab Eileen and Moore at a bar because there is an incident where they were accused of assault and battery with a beer bottle. So some kind of altercation happened again, and Eileen had used a beer bottle to assault somebody. Yikes. So March 1988, Warnos accused a bus driver in Daytona Beach of assault. She claimed that he pushed her off the bus following a fight she was in, and Moore was listed as a witness to the incident. Throughout interviews with Eileen, I think she genuinely claims that she loved Moore and that Moore mm-hmm. was her one true love. Mm-hmm. The two were not together that long in the grand no. scheme of her life. I don't think she has a healthy, you know, understanding of relationships. No. But this is when the murders start happening. First, well, there were seven men in about 12 months. So she was a serial killer, even though she claimed she wasn't a serial killer. It's interesting because you can hear her interviewed and she says, you know, I didn't kill somebody every day, so I'm not a serial killer. Like, she, yeah. she clearly doesn't understand what a serial killer is. Right. Right. But the first one was Richard Charles Mallory, 
age 51. Um, she killed him in 1989. He was an electronic store owner in Clearwater. So in all fairness to her on this first victim, he was a convicted rapist and she claimed to have killed this guy in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, she <laughs> says that he sodomized her and brutally beat her and he drove her to this abandoned area for sex um, and that she, you know, fearing for her life after he abused her and hurt her, she killed him in self-defense. Yeah. And I do think with some of these, it is completely believable that they were abusive or violent. I mean, that's, you know. I don't think that that's uncommon, though, for sex workers to experience that, particularly during that time, because I think there was sort of this sort of taboo about being a sex worker that Mm -hmm. I think a lot of customers knew that they could get away with pretty Mm -hmm. much anything they wanted because it's not like the sex worker is going to go to the police and report it. Right. And I think that still might happen. I mean, because it is still considered illegal activity, whether I think it should be or not. Yeah. I don't think it should be. But like, yeah, I mean, it's when you're already engaged in illegal activity, you're less likely to go to the police. Yeah. It's frightening. Yeah. But about two days after he was killed, the police find his abandoned vehicle and they find his body several miles away in a wooded area. Mm-hmm. So he'd been shot. There were two bullets that he'd been shot with that were determined to be the cause of death. Okay. okay. The next one was David Andrew Spears. This was a 47-year-old man. He was a construction worker. He was um, found to be missing in 1990. And they found his naked body alongside U.S. Route 19 in Citrus County in Florida. Okay. This particular one had been shot six times. Okay. I think at this point, you know, when you've got more than one and they're dying in the same manner, the police are starting to have, you know, the red light flashing on that radar, right? The next one was Charles Edmund Karskaden, age 40. Um, He was a part-time rodeo worker. And again, you have to realize that all of these men had come to Eileen for sex work. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to victim blame, but at the same time, there is that element to it as well. Mm -hmm. But this guy was a part-time rodeo worker, and they found his body in Pasco County in June 1990. This one had been shot nine times. In addition, the body had been wrapped in an electric blanket and that had been, it had been in that blanket for quite a while and was decomposing when they finally found mm-hmm. him. And witnesses actually saw Eileen with this guy's car. Mm-hmm. And she pawned a gun that people knew belonged to Karskinen. Okay. So not only did she have his gun, but she had his car. So that's kind of, you know, red hard light to get right out there. of that one. Yeah. Hard to explain that one away. Yeah. Next one, Peter Abram Seams, age 65. He was a retired merchant seaman. Um, they found him July 1990 in Orange Springs, Florida. They found his car. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eileen and her girlfriend were found were seen in the abandoned car. And Eileen's palm print was in the, like the hood, the door handle. Yeah. His body was never found. So maybe she fed him to alligators. Maybe alligators found his body at some point. I don't know, but they never found his body. 
But he was reported missing and his car was found and they're, they're sure that he's gone. Um, Troy Eugene Burress was the next one, age 50. He was a sausage salesman, which, wild, right? Um, he was found in July 1990 as well, at the end of July, because he was reported missing then, but they didn't find his body until August. And he was found in a wooded area along State Route 19, which seems to be kind of a place that she enjoyed dropping bodies in. Yeah. Um, he had been shot twice. Then there's Charles Richard Dick Humphreys, age 56. He was a retired U.S. Air Force major. Uh, it's interesting. He was a former state child abuse investigator and chief of police, former chief of police, mm-hmm. which is just sad. Um, they found his body in Marion County in September 1990. He was fully clothed, but he'd been shot six times in the head and torso. They found his car in a nearby county. Yeah. And then lastly, there was Walter Geno Antonio, age 62. He was a trucker and a security guard and a police reservist. They found him November 1990. And his body was nearly naked. And they found him near a remote logging area. Mm-hmm. He'd been shot four times. And they found his car a few days later and a few counties over. So I think her MO was to be out working, right? And to be you know, recruited for sexual work by these men and she'd get in the car and determine that she didn't want to do the sex work and so she would rob them, shoot them, mm-hmm. take their car and have a little joyride or, you know, get whatever money or that she could out of pawning objects that may have been in their car and mm-hmm. then she would abandon the car. That was kind of her MO, right? And during this whole time, she's dating this Moore character. Mm-hmm. So, and I I remember it very clearly during the movie that she was sort of like trying to be a a husband and provider Mm -hmm. for her girlfriend and so that she wouldn't have to work as a hotel maid anymore. Right. And they like lived in different hotels and like apartments that they kept getting kicked out of in the movie at least. And, And, and I do think this is true also that Taria did not know for a little while what what she was doing what eileen was doing as far as work how she was bringing in money she did ultimately find out but not at the beginning yeah and i don't think she knew about the murders either Mm -hmm. initially um i mean there's some debate on that but clearly they were living a very transient sort of a lifestyle um it was rough it was a kind of a situation where it must have been very hard just trying to and get to, by. To have to survive off sex work just seems like, particularly the way she was doing it, because mm-hmm. I realize there are many, many, many different types of sex work. Mm-hmm. But the type that she was engaging in was dangerous. It could be brutal at times, and there was a tremendous risk of mm-hmm. being beaten up or being hurt or being killed even. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's doing this alongside a, a state route 19 and you've got serial killers running around. I mean, this is like, yeah. you and I both know, and we've talked in previous shows about truck driving Long serial killers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, killing along these places and particularly with sex workers because they, they know the, the woman won't be missed. Right. They won't be reported for a long period of time. So it's a very, very dangerous. Right. Even if, if they even know about the woman being in the area at all, because that, that sex work is also a transient lifestyle, especially yeah. in that time. Yeah, absolutely. So it all comes to an end in July 1990 when Warnos and Moore 
um, had abandoned one of the victim's cars after they were involved in an accident. And I, I think you can probably remember that mm-hmm. scene in the movie. She like backs into a garbage can or a mailbox or something like that and just damages the car pretty bad. And mm-hmm. witnesses saw them driving the victim's car and provided the police with their names and descriptions. And this leads to this huge media campaign to try to find them because I think it was kind of like a Thelma and Louise sort mm-hmm. of a back then. I'm trying to see if I remember the media coverage on that. I mean, I was pretty young. I think I was in junior high when this happened, so I can't mm-hmm. recall off the top of my head, but it's, I think they sort of initially thought they were sort of a Thelma and Louise kind of a thing. Interesting. But, they, but then they found victims' belongings at pawn shops and they got fingerprints off a lot of the cars from Eileen. And since she had a criminal record, her fingerprints were on file. Yeah. Yeah. So early part of 1991, she's arrested. And they find her at the last resort of Biker Bar. Mm-hmm. Is that the bar you were going to talk about? It is. You want me to do that now? Sure. So, yeah, so this place, well, first of all, it's called The Last Resort, and it's where she was arrested, which is, like, fitting, right? Um, This place has continued to cash in on the fact that that? this was, yeah, that this is where Eileen Warnos is arrested. There's, like, a portrait of her. They sell her, yeah, they sell T-shirts that have her face on them. Oh, that's bonkers. They sell, like, her photo on, like, bottles of hot sauce, and, like, they, like, it's kind, like, it kind of is like that, Kansas City barbecue in, in San Diego where like it's only uh, still open because oh, Top, Gun was, Top Gun was filmed yeah. there like I imagine this is that kind of place like they're just staying they're operating now because people come from all over the country to see where Eileen Warnos had her last beer like it's just wow. it's it's that's wild yeah and like there I mean it's just kind of gross yes yeah I mean it's it's the the bar's covered inside and out with graffiti and like I mean it's like a it's a dive bar but like the fact that they just have Eileen Warno's stuff like all over the place is just wild now I want to go there I'm kind of (laughs) interested in going there too I'm not gonna lie to you I mean we go to Florida quite a bit yeah maybe maybe someday interesting Mm -hmm. though that they have a tried to cash in on that oh yeah um in any case though the police find the girlfriend Taria Moore the next day She's made it all the way to Scranton, Pennsylvania, when they grab her. And she agrees to get a confession in exchange for immunity. So she's going to talk to Eileen and get Eileen to confess. She returns to the police, with the police to Florida, and then they put her up in a motel. Mm -hmm. And under their kind of guidance, she makes a bunch of phone calls to Eileen. She wants to convince Eileen to help her clear her own name. Yeah. And then three days after that, um, January 16th, 1991, Eileen confesses to the murders, all of them. But she claims the men tried to rape her and she killed them all in Mm self-defense, which a little bit hard to believe. One or two maybe, but like six or seven. Well, and especially like- A little bit harder to believe. It is believable for the ones that were found in some sort of state of undress or something like that, but the one that was found fully clothed. Yeah. You know, know, I'm not sure that one was, but. Yeah, yeah. So, a little bit hard to believe. Yeah. Um, and then she goes on trial January 14th, 1992. So, I was in high school back then. Okay. But I don't remember any of this. I don't, I don't think it was very highly publicized. I don't remember it, but time. I was also, I mean, I was in second grade at 92. So, I don't, it wasn't part of my collective. No. 
But she's on trial for the murder of Mallory. The, mm -hmm. the, oh, the first the, one. The last name Mallory, yeah. Previous convictions are normally inadmissible in criminal trials under you know normal circumstances, but the prosecution was allowed to introduce evidence related to other crimes to show a pattern of illegal activity, which is interesting. I guess Florida has this thing called the Williams Rule, which allows the prosecution mm -hmm. to do this, which is interesting, yeah. right? Um, January 1992, on the 27th to be exact, she was convicted of this murder. Um, and her girlfriend's testimony, unfortunately, was a big piece yeah. of that. But at her sentencing hearing, psychiatrists basically say she's mentally unstable mm -hmm. and that they're trying to use that as a mitigating factor. They say that she has a borderline personality disorder, antisocial, antisocial personality disorder, and a bunch of other stuff, yeah. right? But she was sentenced to death four days later, mm -hmm. re regardless of this testimony from the mental health professionals, which seems a little bit unfair to me. Well, I mean, I know she's murdered people, but I think that it's very hard to justify putting someone who's mentally ill to death when they don't understand fully the crime and the consequences of doing right. the crime. Right. So and when it if seems they don't, as though that was the case for her. I'm going to push back on that because if they don't understand the 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 right and wrong of it and the consequences of their actions, then that's absolutely I agree with. Well, I I agree. We I you know. But I'm you think she did? In general. I think so. My understanding and familiarity with borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, they are not things that diminish your capacity to understand right and wrong. It diminishes your capacity to care about doing something wrong. It doesn't. I think that she grew up in such a brutal and such a dark way that right. I don't think she really knew of any other way to survive but to just lash out at everybody in very violent ways. And that may be, and that would be a more more of a mitigating circumstance to me, her childhood and, and her upbringing and all of the abuse that she suffered um, when she was young, that's more of a mitigating factor to me than these uh, mental health diagnoses. I just have a very, very hard time justifying putting this woman to death. Spend the rest of her life in prison, yes, but I just, it's hard yeah. to justify putting her to death. I mean, that's how I feel about everybody. And just, like, I just don't, I don't think we should have the death penalty, so I'm in, a, in agreement with you on that. And not to mention the fact that I feel as though serial killers have a very short lifespan anyway once they get into prison, if you look at most of the ones that are in there, mm -hmm. um, like Dahmer and some of the other ones. But I think that they should have used her to study. I think they should have studied her brain. I think they should have made some yeah. very serious mental health studies on her. She wasn't exactly um, I don't the most cooperative prisoner, no, but maybe that's if, heard, if she had, maybe if, if she didn't have a death sentence, that could have been yeah. different. You know, who knows? I mean, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, but later that year, in March, she pled no contest to the murders of a bunch of the other guys. She claims at that point she wanted to, quote, get right with God, which mm -hmm. very well could have been the case. She had a coming to come to Jesus. She met a woman. Um, like a missionary, I think. She pled no contest to the murders of some of her other victims because of that. And she confesses and says, basically, you know, they, the one guy tried to rape me, the first one. The others didn't. It mm -hmm. is what it is. This is what I did. I'm taking responsibility. And she gets three more death sentences. Yeah. 
In June 1992, she pleads guilty to the murder of another one of the victims, and she gets her fifth death sentence. Like, how many death sentences can you give one person? It just seems like a waste of taxpayer money once you get past one or two. But also, like, in case there's, like, legal issues with the other ones that get overturned, they still have all these other ones to fall back on. Like, they don't have to retry her. Yeah. But it's Florida, so, you know. Right. Um, The defense team, it's interesting to note, tried to pull up that intent to commit rape conviction for Mm -hmm. the first victim of hers and said that he'd been in jail and, you know, had the sex offender classification and whatnot. So that's her, you know, proof that she did self kill him in Mm self-defense. But and records did show that Mallory, the first victim, was committed, committed for treatment and observation following criminal charges. Um... And it was also observed that he possessed strong sociopathic trends, but the judge refused to allow any of this to be admitted in court as evidence hmm. and denied Eileen's request for a retrial. Okay. So in February, 1993, she pleads guilty to more murders and she receives six death sentences. <laughs> so by 1993, she's got six death sentences behind her. And she tells really inconsistent stories about the killings, which doesn't help her at all. Right. Because first she claims they all tried to rape her. She was working as a sex worker. And then she recants that and says only one was self-defense. And then robbery, she says, was her. And then she didn't want to leave any witnesses. But her stories are changing off and on throughout all of this. Mm-hmm. Then she does this interview with this gentleman by the name of Nick Broomfield, Yes, I've watched that. And while the cameras are off, she basically says that she wants to die. She doesn't like being on death row, and she's been there for 10 years, and she just wants to die. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, she did this psychopathy checklist, and she mm-hmm. scored a 32 out of 40. And that's very high. Yes. Basically, the psychopathy checklist evaluates people on 20 items of antisocial and interpersonal behaviors. And each item gets scored at zero, one, or two, and you can get a maximum score of 40 on this test. Mm -hmm. Scores above 25 or 30 are consistent with this psychopathy diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So she clearly had that. She clearly had that going for her. And I will say that test, um, I don't know if they use it anymore, but it's... It is skewed because it was validated against an, a prison population already. Yeah. So, like, if you or I take it and we get, like, a score of, like, eight or something like that, that's that kind of doesn't really matter because it's it's completely invalid against a different, a, a different type of population. So, like, yes, 32 is high for her, but it's also – she's also checking a lot of boxes that, of people that have already been interviewed and validated against that are already in prison. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I've heard that that's not the most accurate sort of gauge no, it's not. of someone being a sociopath or a psychopath yeah. or whatever. But and and now they don't even that's not even a diagnosable term. Yeah. Um, now it, they diagnose as the things that that she's been diagnosed with, which are anti personal antisocial personality disorder and um, borderline personality disorder. Those are the two yeah. they use. Yeah. So clearly, she had a whole host of different things wrong with her mentally, Mm -hmm. but you know, that she's got that genetic predisposition towards schizophrenia because it can often be genetic. It does run in families. Um, that mental illness that she already has from Mm -hmm. her father and perhaps from her grandparents as well. I don't know, but she doesn't have a lot going for her when that, as far as that's concerned, but right. 
She was incarcerated at the Florida Department of Corrections Broward Correctional Institute. But there's this interesting little audio clip of her that I want to play that she kind of said after she was convicted. You want to hear this? Mm-hmm. I think I already played it for you, but here we go. Okay, there will be an automatic appeal. You have the right to an appeal. Mr. Glazer, is that going to be handled by you? May or your the wife and kids uh, get raped. I would ask that uh, you would point right. Office. Okay, I'll, I'll appoint the public defender's office uh, to handle the appeal. There's one other thing that I want to say that I think needs to be said. I know I was raped. You weren't nothing but a bunch of stump. Therefore, these proceedings are now Putting completed. somebody who was raped. Do you still want the chair? There's no sense in having me tormented for the rest of my life when I don't deserve to be tormented. So I did what anybody else would do. And so it's only clemency or the chair. You make your pick, people. Because that's the only way it's gonna be. Interesting, right? She sounds relatively well-spoken. I thought when I heard the clips initially that she would sound a little bit more you know, uneducated mm-hmm. and rough around the edges, but she really doesn't. Yeah. So I found more info about um, her purported conversion to Christianity. She was adopted as an adult when she was 35. Isn't that wild? By a Pentecostal couple who did not have their own children, and they said they felt that God was telling them to reach out to her because they wanted her to know that somebody still lo- like that somebody loves her. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so she was adopted when she was 35 years old. Her adopted parents were. Like she's in prison, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. She's, she's on death row, and and yeah. she's. Her adopted mother's 44, and her adopted father was 56. Um, That's wild how people go in and find somebody to adopt as an adult because they feel it's their duty. Yeah. That's she, kind of a crazy thing. So she consented, obviously, to being adopted because she's an adult and you have to consent, but she was not there for the actual trial where she was adopted. And supposedly it was it was not arranged so that they could make any money or anything off of her name, which I kind of do believe. I don't think these these people sounded like they were just, like, out for money. Um, yeah. Maybe misguided, but, um, you know. Wild. Yeah, so just that's... Just wild. I think that's what precipitated her... Um, her uh, conversion, however brief, to Christianity when... And that may have been why she, like, it, admitted to some of the killings later... Which she, like, yeah. admitted and then, like, said, no, I didn't, I was raped. Like, she went back and forth, but maybe it was the Christianity thing that, like, led her to, yeah. to confess in the first place or whatever, so. Yeah. Yep. Well, her appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court got denied in 1996. And then in 2001, the petition to the Florida Supreme Court, she stated her intention to dismiss her legal counsel and terminate all pending appeals. Mm-hmm. So she was tired of it. She just wanted it to be over. And it's fine. You know, she's allowed to make that mm-hmm. request. Um, but her attorneys kept saying she wasn't mentally competent to make that request. Interesting. Um, but court-appointed panel of psychiatrists agreed with her. Um, in 2002, she started accusing prison matrons of tainting her food with dirt, saliva, and urine. Not Yeesh. outside the realm of possibility, I don't think. I don't know, really, but, it, I mean, it doesn't sound, like, completely... It, this may not be true, but, like... 
you know, it sounds like something that could happen. She claims she overheard conversations yeah. with them saying all this so they could try to push her over the brink, mm. she said, oh. so that she would commit suicide before she was executed. Yikes. And I can imagine that's a thing. I do too. See how far we can push the prisoners yeah. to see how many of them we can get to try to commit. I mean, that seems just awful, but it, it I can believe it. Yeah. Um, there was some talk of rape of her before execution, that kind of thing. She complained that she got strip searched. Tight handcuffing, door kicking, frequent window checks, low water pressure, mildew in her mattress, cat calling, etc. Mm -hmm. um, in response to this, she, she threatened to boycott showers and did stuff with food trays. And I, it doesn't sound like she made it easy for anyone. Yeah. She claimed she just wanted humane treatment before she was executed. Mm -hmm. But it, it was not an easy time for her towards the end. Um, Eileen did give some interviews before she passed away or before she was executed. And she again talked about going away to meet God and Jesus and angels and the great beyond and that she'd been forgiven and so forth. Food poisonings and abuses worsened, she claimed, each time she talked to different people. They, she claims they wanted to make her look insane yeah. or crazy and that they were sabotaging her, railroading her, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think she became increasingly kind of angry at everyone towards mm -hmm. the end. I mean, she seemed just angry in general as a person mm -hmm. anyway, but her execution happened October 9th, 2002. See, and I don't even remember that, and that would have been my first semester in college. Like, I just don't remember yeah. hearing about it. She declined a last meal. Um, evidently, you can have anything under $20. She had black coffee, and her last words were, yes. Quote, yes, I would just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back, like Independence Day, with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie. Big mothership and all, I'll be back, I'll be back. Oh, I do remember reading about that. <laughs> yeah, she died at 9.47 a.m. She's the 10th woman in the U.S. and the second in Florida to be executed since 1976, Supreme Court decision which required capital, which restored mm -hmm. capital punishment. Just yeah. wild. Her body was cremated and they spread her ashes under a tree in Michigan. One of her childhood friends did that, and she requested Carnival, a song by Natalie Merchant, to be played at her funeral, and interesting. Hmm. Um, Merchant actually permitted them to play that song during a documentary about Eileen. Um, this is just, she's really a complex woman. Yeah, like, I, I think it's, there's very few people that I think this kind of applies to, but she is a tragic, like, her life was just tragic. Like, start it to was. finish. From start to like, finish. It's just tragic, and there were things that obviously happened that were not her fault, that obviously contributed to her, her behavior as an adult, that she was responsible for. And it, But it was just like, there's some people, and I like to think that everybody has an opportunity to turn themselves around and, and yeah. have a better life than, than what they went through as a child. But there are some people where I just unfortunately feel like their story is meant to kind of end in a tragic way. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and it sounds like this, she was one of them and it's awful, it's so sad. Doesn't make her any less responsible yeah. for the murders. But it's just so much of her childhood sex mm -hmm. abuse and her career in sex work. And I think all of this just damaged her yeah. like so bad. And it's like 
some of it, they also say that her, she and her brother believe their grandparents were their biological parents. Really? And that was damaging when they were told that they were right. not. Um, and then she was abused by her grandfather. Yeah, her brother. Yeah. And... I mean, her brother may have been abused by the grandfather, too. And, like, that's where, you know, yeah. he was introduced well, to I'm it. Sure. But, like, Probably. Yeah. But she was also known to have early behavioral mm-hmm. problems, like having an explosive temper. Mm-hmm. And this limited her ability to make mm-hmm. friends. And it was hard for her to maintain relationships. Um, and I think just as a whole, people believe that her traumatic upbringing with that physical and sexual abuse could be linked to that development of borderline personality that she suffered Mm -hmm. from. Because severe trauma can interrupt the development of a young mind, as we kind of have touched on in past episodes. And it can result in primitive, according to experts, it can result in, quote, primitive, dissociative, and splitting defenses to ward off the intensity of emotional and sexual stimulation that cannot be integrated as a child, Hmm. quote. Okay. So I believe it. I think she had such a traumatic upbringing, such a traumatic life that it just splintered her. She, there's no way she could be a healthy individual in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, it would have taken a lot of intervention, and she just didn't have access to the resources for it. I mean, it just no tragic. Yeah, absolutely, from every mm-hmm. angle. Anything else you want to add? No. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this case, or if you want to make some corrections to us about this and add something that we missed, please shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We love hearing emails from you guys. Um, Darcy, what's our social media? Yeah, we're at the uh, BFD podcast on um, Instagram. So we'll post pictures. Obviously, there's a lot of pictures uh, about this case. Maybe we can post some pictures of the last resort bar. If you've ever been there, too, send us pics yeah. and we'll post them or something. Wild, that would be right? cool. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Yes, and please join us next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.